0: take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, we'll be there in just a moment to read through this passage of Scripture as we work our way through the narrative and continuing in the series, Great Stories from God's Word. My message today is entitled, The Price of Irreverence and the Path to Holiness. The Price of Irreverence and the Path to Holiness. You've heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And what that basically means is that the things that are the closest to us and most familiar to us, we can come to the place where we don't appreciate them as we should because it's so commonplace. It's such a part of our ordinary experience. We face the spiritual danger of our relationship with God and our understanding of who he is, to become familiarity to the point that we don't appreciate him as we should. When we think about what it means to revere God or to have a healthy reverence toward God, we're essentially thinking about respect and fear. Reverence is something that we feel deeply in our soul. It's something that we understand in our heart and in our mind, But then it is displayed outwardly by how we relate to God, how we approach him, how we listen to his word, how we pray and seek to know him on a daily basis, and how our lives demonstrate worship toward him as we live. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28 and 29 says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Reverence toward God is a deep respect for who he is, understanding that he is perfect in holiness, majesty, authority, and power. Charles Stanley said, The beauty of God exceeds the grandest vista. His worth is greater than the largest, purest diamond. His power is like that of a storm, magnificent to look at from a distance, but dangerous if we presume to draw near unprepared. To revere God is to regard him as worthy of all honor and praise. The scripture passage before us today is an example of the price of irreverence and the path to holiness. The focus is on the events surrounding the Ark of the Covenant, Under the leadership of David, God made a covenant with Israel and as a sign of his covenant, he had the Israelites make the Ark of the Covenant and he gave Moses instructions specifically on how it was to be constructed. Understand that God does everything orderly. He does everything with anticipation and with clear instruction to his people on how it's to be made. And the ark was to be constructed of acacia wood. Not only was it constructed of acacia wood, but it was overlaid or gilded with pure gold. And it was to be housed in the tabernacle and then later uh, in the temple when they would finally make it to Jerusalem. The ark was not that large. It was very ornate, however. It was only about three and three quarters feet long, two and one quarter feet wide, and two and one quarter feet high. The significance of the ark was not only in how it was constructed, but why it was constructed, and it represented the very presence of God among the people. So the value of the ark was that it represented God manifesting himself to his people. And the Lord told Moses, There I will meet with you. On the ark, on the top also, was the mercy seat. The mercy seat comes from a word in the Hebrew which means to appease or to make atonement for. So it represented that a propitiation was being made for the sins of the people. And as God would have them do, the high priest once a year would enter into the Holy of Holies, where the ark was kept, after having cleansed himself and prepared himself to come into the presence of God. And there he would offer blood from the sacrifice for his own sins, And then also for the sins of the people. And that mercy seat was a foreshadowing of what was to come in Christ who would be our mercy seat. That Jesus Christ would offer himself as the propitiation for our sins. That what was but a symbol through the Ark of the Covenant became a permanent reality through the finished work of Jesus Also on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant were two gold cherubim. They were angelic beings facing each other with their wings spread upward and covering the mercy seat. God's presence would hover above the seat between the cherubim as he met there with the priest. And this symbol of what was to come was a reminder every year that God was interceding on behalf of his people and he was promising that an ultimate deliverer would come. Now, the contents of the Ark of the Covenant during this time frame are also significant. The Ark of the Covenant contained the Ten Commandments which God gave to Moses. They were engraved in stone, and they prescribed how the people were to rightly relate to God. The Ark also included the rod of Aaron. This was the same rod that had become a serpent when it was thrown down, and it consumed those of the Pharaoh's Magicians. The rod was used to turn the waters of the Nile to blood and to bring the plagues of frogs and gnats or lice. And in Numbers chapter 17, as a way of validating the choice of Aaron as the high priest, God miraculously made this rod of Aaron bud with flowers and almonds. And it was to be a testimony among the people. Third, there was the jar of manna that was placed there in the Ark of the Covenant. God gave manna to the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. And you remember they were to gather only what they needed for that particular day. And when they went outside of what God said, there were consequences to that. But yet God faithfully provided for them through this 40 year period of wandering in the wilderness toward the promised land. So the Ten Commandments or the law represented the instruction of God. The rod of Aaron represented the power of God. And the jar of manna represented the provision of God for his people. Now, by the time we get all the way to Solomon's temple, all we find, according to the scripture, in the Ark of the Covenant is the law or the Ten Commandments. We're not given details as to why that is, but at this point, it's likely all three of these elements would have been present. Now, on the Ark of the Covenant were also rings attached ...for which they were to place golden poles through those rings... ...and the Levites were to carefully carry the Ark of the Covenant anywhere that it went. They would cover it with three specific coverings... ...so that the people would not be able to lay eyes on it. The people would have to stay something like a thousand yards away... ...even as the Levites moved in and used the poles... ...and began to carry the Ark to where it was going... After Moses died, the children of Israel were led by Joshua into the promised land with the Ark of the Covenant leading the way. When they arrived at the banks of the Jordan River, the Ark was carried preceding the people. Later, the tabernacle was set up in a place called Gilgal, and the Ark of the Covenant was kept there for a while. Later, it was removed and taken to Shiloh, which was to the north of Jerusalem, where it would remain for some 400 years during the period of the Judges. And here is where the events begin to turn and the price of irreverence comes into focus for us. Israel decided that they were going to take the ark into battle against the Philistines. Evidently, they saw it somewhat as a a good luck charm and they thought they were going to take it out there in the battle of Ebenezer. And Israel lost 30,000 men. And not only did they lose 30,000 men, but the ark of the covenant fell into the hands of the Philistines now, the Philistines would soon regret that they had captured the ark. And when the ark was taken into captivity, uh, there was a messenger that went to the old priest Levi or Eli to tell him about what had happened. And the Bible says that he fell dead when the message came to him. That's how distraught he was over the events that had taken place. His own daughter-in-law named her son, who was to be born, Ichabod meaning the glory has departed Israel and she died while she was giving birth to Ichabod. The Philistines carried the ark to several places in their country and disaster followed at every point. At a place called Ashdod it was placed in the temple of Dagon and the scripture says that the next morning after it was placed there in the temple that the statue of Dagon was found broken on the floor and the people of Ashdod were struck with tumors and a plague of mice. There was a plague of boils that was visited upon the people of Gath and Ekron as a result of what had happened. So their spiritists or diviners, as they're referred to in the scripture, after about seven months said, hey, you got to get rid of this thing. You understand there's, there's a connection here between what's happening. You've got this Ark of the Covenant and there's some bad things that are going on. So the ark was set up in the field of Joshua, who's referred to as the Bethshemite. And out of curiosity, the men gathered around. You kind of see the the scene in your mind's eye. People are curiosity seekers anyway, and you know they always say curiosity killed the cat. Well, in this instance, curiosity killed the people who had the audacity to come and to peer into the ark of the covenant. They're like, "Hey, all, what's that? Let's go look at that!" And boom, the judgment of God falls and there are many who are killed. So they sent it to Kirjoth-Jerim to have the ark taken to the house of Abinadab where it would remain for 20 years. And at the beginning of David's reign, he begins to have the ark of the covenant removed. And that's where we pick up reading in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000, He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah. This is also referred to as as, uh, kiriath Jerem. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fur, wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cistrums, and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, and he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, so he named that place literally Outburst Against Uzzah, as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath, and the ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. So at this point in history, the ark has been disconnected from a proper place of worship for somewhere around a century. David goes first, it says, with 30,000 men, and because the ark of the Lord represented the holiness of God, the Levites were to carry it as God had prescribed, and nobody was to touch it, and they weren't to look in it, And why David overlooked these very important details that had been prescribed by God, we don't know. But at a minimum, it was a carelessness about the things of God. So he and Uzzah and Ahio, who were two descendants of Abinadab, placed the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and they proceed with a musical celebration toward the city of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know if they passed over what was just a small outcropping of stone, or there was a divot in the road, or we're going in some type of up and down hills or what. But what happened was the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark, and he is struck dead by God for touching it. Now, the Lord's discipline here, at least from our perspective, would look quite harsh, but we have to see his discipline. And we have to put the judgment of God in perspective, understanding God's holiness. Because it's God's holy character that drives God's judgment. And uh, the place was named Perez Uzzah, which literally means outburst against Uzzah. And David has the ark taken to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And it stayed there for three months. And the Bible says that the Lord blessed the family there. Now, what comes next is not the price of irreverence. What comes next is the path to holiness. You understand that holiness is God's purpose for your life on this earth when he brings you into a relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. He sets you apart in the remainder of your life here as you're making your way toward the heavenly city of God is to be lived consistently with who your heavenly father is. That's why we're told to be holy, as our Father in heaven is holy. That's God's priority for us. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, we are to emulate the Savior on this earth, and we do it by the grace and through the power of God who has saved us. We pick back up reading in verse 12. It was reported to King David, basically, that the people were blessed where it rested. The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord and wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michael... Looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of Armies. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. The first truth I want to show you here is that the path to holiness begins with reverence toward God. The path to holiness begins with reverence toward God. You see, the law, as was given in the Ark of the Covenant, flowed from the holy character of an eternal God. God gave specific instructions of how he would manifest himself to Israel. He gave specific instructions on how they were to relate to him. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the manifest presence of the glory of God among the people. If someone were to approach, as the high priest did, the Holy of Holies, and to come to where the Ark of the Covenant was, he was essentially coming into the manifest visible presence of the glory of God who does not tolerate evil. And when the ark was in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, it was kept in that most holy place. It was concealed by a curtain so that the people could not see it. Only the high priest could enter into the most holy place. He had undergone a ceremonial cleansing to be able to do that. He had made a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the people. He had burned incense, as the Lord had instructed, and he took it very seriously. And he understood that God's holiness was present there among his people. But here's what happened when they were moving the ark. And Uzzah reaches out and he touches what God had said not to touch. He was, in essence, profaning God and disobeying God. They should have been carrying it to begin with, with the poles. And it never should have been on a cart to begin with. It should have been on the shoulders of the Levites. The way they carried it, people were able to see the ark, which was also a violation of what God had said. And evidently, as a result of God's judgment falling on Uzzah for reaching out and touching the ark, David learned his lesson, and he began to think, how are we going to do this according to how God has said to do it? So a period ensued where they were waiting, and I think David was preparing, and the ark is there in Obed-Edom's household, and the Lord blesses them there. The message comes back to the king that they've been blessed because they're housing the ark of the covenant. So here's the point that I want to make. Reverence toward God comes in part through our recognition of God as judge. Now understand that the idea of God as judge in our culture is something that people push back against. And one of the most commonly said things by people who like to do what they like to do with no consequences at all is, Hey, don't judge me. Well, you're right. I am not and you are not the ultimate judge of any other person. But when we share with someone that there is a right way and there is a wrong way and there is an eternal God who is the judge, what we are doing is we are warning them that there are consequences to come, that there is an accountability toward the God who has created us and that we need to understand that and live in light of that because God is the one who judges all. God is the one who judges impartially and He does so not on the basis of outward appearance. He does so on the basis of reality. So I'd say it this way. Righteousness and justice go hand in hand in the Bible. They're paired together. Righteousness is the quality of being right or just, and justice in the judgment of God is righteousness being applied according to who God is. So we realize there's a judge over all the earth to whom we will be accountable. Reverence toward God comes from a realization of what he has done on our behalf for our redemption, that God has not left us in our sin, but he has offered freedom from our sin and deliverance from our bondage through his son whom he has sent. Now, this was foreshadowed through the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb for the Israelites was a symbol of physical bondage and then being released from that in their slavery in Egypt. But it was pointing forward to when the Lamb of God would offer up Himself so that we could be freed from the bondage of sin. The Ark of the Covenant was pointing people to the holiness of God and the character of God in judgment and the idea that there is a right way to relate to God and the fact that God would receive sinners like us into His presence. And it was pointing all the way forward to what Christ would do for us and that we would be redeemed by the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless Lamb. So all of this is telling us that our hope and our faith are to be in God, the one who judges, but the one who also receives. And while only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, representing all of the people, we have a high priest who has entered into the most holy place in the heavens. He has offered up his blood ...as the ultimate mercy seat. He has made propitiation for our sins that the wrath of God would be satisfied. That we might have right standing with God and that we might come boldly into the presence of God. And I'm reminded of the account in Scripture in Revelation... ...where John the Revelator is brought into the presence of the Lamb of God, the risen Lord Jesus. And he gives us an account of that in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17... And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. You understand, this is is a realization that now you are in the presence of the glory of God, the eternal one over all of the universe, over all of creation, the one who has always been, who has all power and glory in his hands. And when we come into his presence... The only right response from a human perspective is to fall on our face as though we are dead in reverence to God because he's worthy. And Jesus, in that moment, laid his hand on John and he said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys to death and Hades. So here's what happens through repentance and faith. When we are brought into a realization that there is a judgment coming and that we are guilty sinners, and we understand that God has made the way for us through his son Jesus, who lived and died, paying the penalty for our sins on the cross, being buried in a borrowed tomb, being raised on the third day, and eventually ascending back to the right hand of God the Father, when we are brought into a realization of the truth of the gospel and we believe, we fall on our faces as though we are dead in submission and reverence to the holiness and the glory of God. And Jesus reaches down and he puts his hand on us and he says, Fear not. So while we are not worthy, none of us are worthy to come into the presence of God on our own. None of us are able to come into the presence of a holy God on our own as sinners we can not only come into his presence through Jesus Christ, but we can come with confidence and boldness and we are invited into the very throne room of the universe and we do so in reverence toward God by the blood of Jesus while Jesus is interceding for us, while the Holy Spirit is filling us with his power, while we're guided by the word and our lives bring glory to him. You see the juxtaposition here? The right response is fear But then we're welcomed into his presence and we're told not to fear. Because Jesus is the one who lived and died and now lives again. The path to holiness begins with reverence toward God. Second truth is this. The path to holiness continues in obedience to the will of God. The path to holiness continues in obedience to the will of God. Now, when they began to carry the Ark of the Covenant toward Jerusalem, the ones carrying the Ark after the death of Uzzah and after this time has passed, did it the right way. And the Bible says that they advanced six steps and they stopped, and David sacrificed there to the Lord. I think what we're seeing is a posture and an action of obedience toward God. Now don't miss this because it says in verse 13, when those carrying the ark of the Lord. Now, first off, after David learned his lesson, they nixed the idea of carrying it on an ox cart and they carried it the way God said to carry it. This is significantly different from, Hey y'all, let's load the ark of the covenant up on a cart, like a bundle of firewood to now let's do it the way God said to do it. And that's exactly what they did. And in fairness, When they loaded it up on the cart, it was a new cart and they were worshiping and singing along the way, but it was not what God had said to do. So it doesn't matter what our intentions are. It doesn't matter how hard we try or how much we prepare. If we're not doing the things that God has said to do, we're living in disobedience. You could spend all of your energy and all of your effort and all of your time and all of your resources on the wrong things in life and end up empty because you've not been obedient to God's call on your life. And I think this is a point of reverence and obedience to the Lord. Now, can we just say here that obedience is not easy? It's not. James chapter 3 and verse 2 says that we all stumble in many ways. So to obey God is not easy, but here's the beauty of it. The grace with which God rescued you from death, hell, and the grave and your sins and raised you to life in Christ is the same grace by which he empowers you to live your life. So it's not as though God rescues us and then says, well, just do the best you can. It's not as though we're redeemed through the blood of Christ on the cross and then it becomes a try harder, do better faith. That would fly in the face of the gospel. Instead, it's obedience that's empowered by the same grace that God saved you with and it is obedience that comes from a heart that is focused on God's word. I'm reminded of the Old Testament king Hezekiah one of the best and most godly kings over God's people. He was brought up in a household, the household of Ahaz, a man who had absolutely no regard for God. Ahaz set up idolatrous worship and pagan shrines, and that's what Hezekiah grew up around. His story is recorded three times in the Bible, once in Kings, once in Chronicles, and then again in Isaiah. But there's a very telling passage in 2 Kings 18, in verse 5 and following, that tells about Hezekiah's life. Listen to this. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given Moses. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. Now, don't miss the links of the chain here. He was faithful, he was obedient, and he was successful. Faithful, obedient, and successful. Wouldn't that be a great record of our lives? That we were faithful to the things of the Lord? That we were obedient to do what God said to do? And that God brought us success in the things that matter? You see, here's the problem with a lot of people who call themselves Christians, who sit in churches week in and week out. They call themselves Christians outwardly, but their lives are not consistent and they don't line up with what a biblical Christian looks like. So as a result of that, they pursue all sorts of things in their lives through their vocation and their family and their recreation and their community interests and so forth. And if those things are not aligned with God's will for your life, you can spend everything that God has entrusted to you. You could lay out yourself in all the effort that you could possibly do. And if you're obedient in the wrong things, then God's not going to be honored. So you've got to seek the Lord in the particular giftings God has called you to and get gifted you with, to the vocation that God has placed before you, to the family that God has entrusted to you, with the resources that God has given to you to use. And you've got to ask the Lord to help you be obedient. Say, Lord, I want to honor you. You see, a heart of obedience promotes unity among God's people. It says here in verse 15 that he and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of a ram's horn. They all got in on it this time. Because evidently they began to understand the significance of what was taking place in worship to God. Del Phezenfeld, who was the founder of Life Action Ministries, the revival ministry, wrote ablaze with his glory. He was a man who spoke often of obedience and he said this, Partial obedience, delayed obedience, and surface obedience to impress others are not acceptable to God. He is looking for men and women who will respond with an instant, complete, wholehearted, and joyous obedience each time he speaks. The path to holiness begins with reverence toward God. The path to holiness continues in obedience to the will of God. And then third and final truth is this. The path to holiness results in the glorification of God. This is the culmination of of honoring him and fearing him, listening to his word, being guided by his spirit, and bringing glory to his name. Verse 16 says, when they brought the ark into the city, David was leaping and dancing before the Lord. Now, can I just stop here and say, apparently David was not a Baptist. (laughs) Maybe you're accustomed to standing on the promises and sitting on the premises and anything beyond that is just a little bit too much for you in your worship. But you understand the Hebrews, they had sacred dances that they would perform at various ceremonial times commemorating the divine goodness of God. And David's dancing was not toned down, it was with all his might. It was a celebration of joy. Our brother read from the psalm in the time of prayer this morning, but I want us to turn to yet another psalm that gives us insight into what worship in the sight of God looks like. In Psalm 149, hold your place and turn to Psalm 149 just for a moment. Uh, The prescript here is praise for God's triumph. Psalm 149 begins in verse 1 hallelujah sing to the lord a new song his praise in the assembly of the faithful let israel celebrate its maker let the children of zion rejoice in their king let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and lyre for the lord takes pleasure in his people he adorns the humble with salvation let the faithful celebrate in triumphal glory let them shout for joy on their beds let the exaltation of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands, inflicting vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, binding their kings with chains and their dignitaries with iron shackles, carrying out the judgment decreed against them. This honor is for all his faithful people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. to God in the midst of his assembly for his salvation. Hallelujah to God for his presence among his people. Hallelujah to God that his glory is made known among us. And then now we have the word and we have the spirit. And when we exalt God, we give our best to him. And I don't think what is specifically in view here is exactly what your actions of worship are, because you could worship in silent submission to God and it be with all your heart and you could do it overtly with outward expression and that also be with all your heart but the point here is that we give our very best and we give everything to god and what we see happen here is that michael the daughter of saul and david's first wife saw what was happening and she was embarrassed now what was she embarrassed about she was embarrassed about what other people thought and you know we can be more concerned in our worship and our service to God, we can be more concerned with what other people think than we are with what God thinks. And yes, the king was dancing. He's wearing a linen ephod, and maybe she thought it was not modest or she thought what he was doing was unacceptable. But we see what David said in his own defense just a little bit later on, and he essentially says, I didn't do anything wrong. And notice how he puts it in verse 21 and 22. He says, it was before the Lord who chose me over your father, over Saul and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. And then he says this, I will dance before the Lord and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. So let me translate that for you. David said, not only was I not wrong, but you ain't seen nothing yet. I will dishonor myself and be willing to embarrass myself in order to honor the Lord. And while our outward actions may vary, we should immerse ourselves in total worship to God. Here's a king. He's the leader over this whole nation. He's a strong man. He's visible. He's well-known. And yet he's consumed with the things of God. And when you give your all to God, you might just be ridiculed by people Who have a greater fear of man than they do a fear of God. But don't worry about it. Because what worship is going to do is lead you to a place of even greater surrender. And that's what David said. I will do even more. So they brought the ark. And they put it inside the tent that they had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of Armies. And here's the final thought I want you to leave with today. God blesses his people when they walk in the path of holiness. God blesses his people when they walk in the path of holiness. Jerry Bridges is one of my favorite writers. He's now gone on to be with the Lord, but such a humble, godly man who has helped so many walk the path of holiness by the grace of God. And he told a story of one time when he was in the doctor's office, and he referenced a portrait that he saw on the wall there in the doctor's office of a man being sculpted out of a block of marble. The sculpture was completely finished down to about mid-thigh, but below that, the partially chipped away marble gradually phased into the outline of the original block. He said the man in the sculpture was handsome and robust. He had a form that any man would be happy to have. But the arresting thing about the portrait of this man being sculpted is that the man was sculpting himself. Now think about it. He said, as I pondered the painting, I was struck by its graphic portrayal of how many Christians seek to grow in personal holiness. Bridges wrote, we try as it were to sculpt or mold ourselves we seek to grow in holiness through our own personal efforts and willpower. And we're just as ludicrous as a block of marble trying to sculpt itself. And then he closed with this. Holiness is not, as it is so often thought, adherence to a set of rules. It is conformity to the character of God. Nothing more and nothing less. Friend, don't try to sculpt yourself into what God wants you to be. You yield yourself up to him. You obey the things that he's told you to obey. And your life will be a natural and spiritual overflow toward the glory of God. And people will be drawn to him because your life is bringing glory to his name. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray and conclude. Here in just a moment, Pastor Eric's going to come and sing a closing song with us. And maybe there's somebody here today who's never taken the first step on the path, and that would be repentance and faith. That would be turning from your sins and turning to Jesus so that you can be saved and forgiven. Would you come and follow Jesus today? Maybe you're already a believer, but You've been pursuing some things that you know are not consistent with what God's best is for your life. And you have a heart to want to honor God. And maybe God's saying, you need a course correction today. You've been on your own path, but I want to take you on the path to holiness. I want you to be just as I am. I want you to be more like Jesus. What's God speaking to you about in that area through his word? Father, thank you for this time you've blessed us with today. We come to honor you and to lift up the name of Jesus. And I pray as there are steps of faith and decisions that need to be made today that people would come in response to your word and your spirit and your son and be forever transformed. Thank you, God, that you call us out of darkness and into light, not by our own effort, but all of yours, all because of the finished work of Jesus. And we thank you that that finished work is sufficient to see us through all of life and to see us safely home to eternity. So we long for that. We look forward to it. In the meantime, I pray that you would find us faithful and obedient and successful in the things that matter. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.